This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook Design invests in building and teaching designers using the best tools for the job. I asked product designer Matthew Suber what he's learned about design since working at Facebook. Product design is a partner of uh, business and strategic decisions, and I've personally evolved thinking this way uh, on my own, but I feel even more confident knowing that I'm at a company that supports that kind of thinking, so that's somewhere where I've grown uh, significantly. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. This week, Fall Creek Software is looking for a design engineer for Glitch. And here at Revision Path, we're looking for a design writer. We also have job listings from indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts so when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. Again, that's revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Glitch is the friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. So whether you're into design or coding or music or art, Glitch is the right tool for you. You can start from scratch with a new project or remix any of the available projects and make them your own. And if you get stuck on anything, just raise your hand and get help from the Glitch community. Get started on making something awesome today at Glitch.com. Whether it's defining a branding style in VR or creating a voice user interface that actually feels human, Google Design is committed to sharing the best design thinking from Google and beyond. Sign up for great stories, events, and the latest updates on material design at design.google forward slash newsletter. Again, that's design.google forward slash newsletter. You can also follow Google Design on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. Did you know that the number one email marketing priority is personalization? I mean, it makes sense if you think about it. You only want to hear from the people and businesses that you like. And MailChimp helps make that happen with their robust campaign builder and a host of helpful automations. It's email marketing with a personal touch. Sign up at MailChimp.com today for a free account. MailChimp. Send better email. Now for this week's interview. We're talking to Brandon Bro, an artist and designer in Chicago. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Brandon Bro. I'm a fine artist designer from Chicago, Illinois. Tell me about the Chicago design scene. Like, what is it like for you? For me, a lot of the design scene was me and, and ad agencies for a long time, just kind of hopping around <laughs> back and forth. Right now, I think it's a lot more colorful. Um, there's a lot more people involved, a lot more people that are creating art as well as design and find themselves in both places like a I found myself when I first started out. So, you know, there are a lot of people doing a lot of things, a lot of events and things that take place. I just try to just chart my own path as much as I can. You know, I have a couple of designers that I'm close to, but I don't get to make it out to the AIGA events and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I just really stick to the studio and keep working. Have you found that the scene has sort of changed as your profile has grown? Yeah. It has over time, you know, of course, there are a lot more, um, it's a lot more designers, a lot more black designers, a lot more people like feeling comfortable with their voice and having a place for them to express themselves. I think at least within our community, people are a lot more open to that conversation and a lot more supportive of that as well, because it's just, it's obvious. It's just not like a whole lot of outlets for folks. I mean, when I started, there were a lot of different, just a lot of different things like parties and a lot of things that that happened in Chicago that that faded away over time. So, you know, I think that we're kind of really um, longing for 
a lot more um, experiences within our community with people of color, just variety, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, over time, I've I've seen a lot of that kind of come about. What about like institutions like SAIC and stuff like that? Do they kind of play into what the design community is like in the city? You know, I, I really don't know what degree. I mean, I know someone that I did a talk at SAIC last year sometime. And a lot of times those like universities are bubbles, right? I like mm -hmm. that that area downtown where the kids hang out, sort of, it's sort of like a bubble. You know, some of those kids are really aware of what's going on in the community and some not at all. It's not as broad or people don't know one another like you think they might yeah. because it's the same thing in the same city. It's a small, big city at the same time. And it's interesting. I always find it interesting when I meet designers that I'm sure have no, no other people that, you know, I know in this, they just they don't because there's just so many different bubbles and pockets in Chicago. Yeah. Atlanta feels kind of the same way. I mean, I would say that it's starting to get better, but I know that I'll still go to many design events here in the city and I'll be the only person of color there. Yeah. And I, I know what you mean about things that kind of exist in like this bubble. Like we have we have Art Institute of Atlanta here, but we also have the Portfolio Center, which is part of Miami Ad School, and we've got Savannah College of Art and Design. And so those sort of operate kind of in their own little like student bubble that also does some stuff with AIGA. But then Atlanta also has like a really strong underground art scene and a black art scene and graffiti arts and stuff like that. And it doesn't feel like it's cohesive because there's all these little pockets of mm -hmm. design that aren't connected really by anything. Right. Yeah, same, you know, same here. And I think those are always moments for opportunity to create things to do so. But, you know, I, I find the same, same thing. Yeah. So let's talk about how you first got started with design. Did you sort of grow up having like a creative childhood and everything? I mean, I guess what kid doesn't, you know, <laughs> exercise their creativity in some degree as a, as a kid. But, I, you know, it wasn't like I had resource to art classes and all of this stuff or like I have materials. I just always drew, man. I just was always into into drawing. When You know, at first it was like family stuff and I was just drawing what I saw on TV. Uh, I was always interested in like building my own like worlds and stuff. You know, I would see the commercials on TV for like toys, for like, you know, different toys that they would have. They didn't just have the toys. They had like these sets they built to play with the damn toys. And I just remember being a kid knowing that that wasn't going to come with a toy, but always fantasizing about how I can build my own little set at home to play with all of my toys, like my own. You know, they had like the nice lighting. And if it was G.I. Joe's, they were on a hill yeah. with a set in the back. You know, they set up these real nice sets. And I was always interested in like in what I could do to make things like better or what my personal take on these items would be. Always thinking kind of beyond what they offered you in the package. And that's kind of when I, um, I was drawing a lot at the same time too, but that was when I, you know, I was really got into comic books and I really got into other things that kind of allowed like imagination to travel a little bit more. So me, it was an artist as a kid. It wasn't so much design. I mean, I feel like the conversation, like what is design doesn't happen at least until you like, you know, high school, <laughs> you know, it's mm -hmm. just, like, you know, you're creative, you know, you like playing with things in a certain way or organizing things in a certain way. But design for me was my way to, it was my compromise and it was my way to, to do, to be creative in a professional field, so to speak. The idea of like a, an artist of being like a fine artist was kind of like, you might make it and you might not. Huh. And it, art is very much in, in, in that way, you know, like being a great draftsman or being great at art doesn't mean you're going to be successful at art. Yeah. Right. It just doesn't. There's other factors that exist within that thing that influence, I think, where you end up. I know like amazing illustrators and people that do commercial work and they just, they're amazing, but they don't achieve the same levels of success as some studio artists and some people who, who can't even render as good as they can. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's, it's just like one of those those things about art that you feel. I feel like I always have to navigate or creators always have to na navigate. It's interesting that, that you're kind of refer to that as a, or I guess referring to fine art as kind of a compromise in that way. Do you mean like in terms of being able to express that creativity and also like being able to, to like make a living? 
Yeah, well, well design and, and it was the, for me design was the compromise. Design it was a, the compromise, okay. Yeah, it was about making a living, right? Because yeah. I mean, I I really wanted to to create art. You know, I really wanted to to do that, and graphic design seemed to be the closest thing that people that would you know that uh, was something that I can do to make a living, and something that people recognized as an avenue that has a steady job associated with it, right? Yeah. So that's what I mean, and. You know, is that conversation around like, you know, we don't want you to be a starving artist. So, you know, my family were having with me and it was like, you need to do something with technology. You need to figure out how to utilize computers and graphic design mm-hmm. ended up being that thing. And this was like, you know, in the beginning days of like the Photoshop or when it was like, I can go to the Art Institute where I eventually started to take classes and they had a graphic design class and we were using those big zip disks. Instead of uh, <laughs> CDs or like thumb drive, you know what I mean. I remember Zip Disk, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it was it was, it was sort of that era. So that, that's what I mean. That's the compromise that I'm talking about. Let's talk about college a little bit. You started out at an HBCU. You started out at Alabama A and M. Can you tell me about your time there? Yeah, I can. So, yeah, college was was really interesting. You know, because I was making that transition, right? I, I had a uh, around high school years. I was taking classes at the Art Institute on the weekends. Like they had this program called the Early College Program, where they had uh, kids come down and you can enroll in courses. You didn't necessarily get credit for the courses. I mean, there was an accredited option and an unaccredited option, but we didn't have like long paper at the time. So it was like, you're just going to take the non accredited classes and then, you know, we'll see where this goes. So I started taking those classes and I was in, in school with adults, like taking figure drawing, mixed media, sculpture fashion design, video. I mean, the, the whole thing. I was taking everything at the Art Institute at that time. And that sort of kind of prepared me for, for college. But that transition in college came and it was like, well, most of the majors at most of these colleges that you really want to go to have something to do with graphic design mm-hmm. and not necessarily fashion, which are what I was interested in too. But Alabama A&M happened to have that. So Alabama A&M's agricultural mechanical you know, university in the thing about that that worked is that I went to an agricultural high school. So I went to Chicago High School for Agricultural Sciences. Okay. So the transition was sort of easy. And textiles is, of course, a part of agriculture. So it kind of all like that's how that made sense and why that, that move made sense to me. I wasn't the best tester in high school. So I didn't get like 30 or whatever on the, on the SAT or anything like or ACT or anything like that. So I ended up at Alabama A&M. It was like a sister school of my high school. It worked out for me. I wanted to get away from home. So it was like, bet, this is what I'm going to do. I can't afford Parsons in New York. Mm-hmm. I can't afford Savannah College of Art and Design. Too specialized and we just don't have the bread. Yeah. So let's do Alabama A&M. So I went, you know, I went for a year. And man, it was interesting because of the community that was building. Uh-huh. It's like apparent. Not much to do on campus because it's a small city and I'm just not used to that. You know, at the time... Yeah. I was also dancing in Chicago, like we were performing, like that was before, before we started doing a lot of professional stuff, mm-hmm. but we started street performing, I think right when I came back. Anyway, I was dancing, I was doing all these things in the city, so to move down to, to Huntsville, Alabama was a lot slower pace, and then the, there wasn't a lot of competition as far as like the art department were concerned, because a lot of kids weren't going down there to, it wasn't Savannah, you know what I mean? And yeah. getting down there, I realized that, and it's just like, and I know in order to be successful, you have to surround yourself around people who are better than you. And you have to like have that kind of going because that, that's what, what dance was all about. And that's what we learned in dance. We would practice at a place where people that were better than us. We would constantly go battle. We would constantly do these things to improve our skill set and had a whole lot to do with community. So I had a great time when I was down at Alabama A&M and, and building. And I was really sad to go because... I definitely didn't find that community in, in DePaul and a lot of things that were available in that community at, when I came back to school at DePaul. Though DePaul, I had a lot more competition and I had a lot more people to, to build and grow with. But yeah, that's sort of like my A&M experience. Interesting. So I'm from Alabama, actually. I'm from uh, from Selma. And I know when I was in high school, certainly Alabama A&M was always a school that a lot of people wanted to go to, not so much for education, more so for the marching band. I yeah, was also, I was also right? in marching band. <laughs> yeah. So when you talk about like how it's in like the small town called Normal, which is like right outside of Huntsville, 
Yeah, I've been there. I know exactly what you're talking about, like there in, in terms of the community and stuff. But you said DePaul is kind of what sort of pushed you in terms of, of I guess, design work in terms of the community there? It did. DePaul was a place. I mean, it was back home, right? And I had a man, it was kind of crazy. So something happened where my transcripts didn't only went out once when I sent them out to different schools. Because I sent it to send my transcripts out to to the Art Institute and I sent them to Columbia. And Columbia is an art school in Chicago too. But something happened on my account. It wasn't showing that my tuition was paid. It was like forty seven dollars or something like crazy. Mm-hmm. So my transcripts never got to the other schools in which I really wanted to go to. So DePaul was like the other school that I applied to that was in Chicago just to be safe. And I got into DePaul. So God wanted me to go to DePaul, I guess. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so yeah, it was it was the first time where uh, my first real college experience in a design department, not just like an art department, where there were professors who were experienced and had brought a lot to like the table, right? And had these variety of these this rank these range of experiences. First time I also got really exposed to art history, and it was a great opportunity, man. Um, and then I had like peers that were really interested in art, that were competitive, and that really wanted to. Uh, create something special and do something with their career, with their lives, right? They knew they wanted to be creative, but they didn't necessarily know how to fit themselves within this graphic design thing, right? And there were some people that were specifically about that, some people that were specifically about being curators. So it definitely was a great, I think, space to kind of incubate in and begin this journey. What was your kind of early career like after you left DePaul? Oh, man. Early career... The day after I graduated, I got a job at this place called Cherry One Designs, Web Design. It was pretty much like this small spot that this guy, this kind of sketchy guy rented out downtown Chicago. And it was like a sweatshop. We just made (laughs) websites all day. Mind you, I didn't know how to write code. I didn't know CSS. I had to learn it in like two weeks. But we got $500 a week to just bang out these websites for these people. And that various people around the country who needed websites. And that was really my first experience. So during the day, I was designing websites at this this spot. And, it, and during the evening and the weekends, I was like breakdancing. I was street performing. And then I was dancing at certain other Chicago events during the summer, like the Taste of Chicago or whatever. So I was had my foot in two worlds again at that point in my life. Usually it was a art world, right? And then the design sort of corporate world, but not quite corporate world, which it felt like. So right after I came out, that's what it was about. I stayed there for about a year or so. And then I got let go because I stopped coming because, <laughs> because <laughs> it was just like, it wasn't fulfilling work. You know, there were cheap websites and the clients just wanted something. Yeah. There was no art director to really work with nobody that was really trying to get the best work out of you, you pretty much manage the project yourself. There was a, what was a project manager? Just made sure you had your work done. And then it was you to be like the, sometimes the copywriter, the designer, the UX guy, you were, you know, you're like a one man team Yeah, working on these different sites. So yeah, that was pretty much that, that experience, my first experience. And after that, I just started freelancing everywhere. My God, that reminds me so much of my work when I was at AT&T. It was very much like a design sweatshop. You're just like cranking yeah. out stuff. There's no soul into it. It's like an assembly yeah. line. You get it. You do it. Pass it off. Here comes the next one. It sucks that there are still places like that. And I know, I mean, I know even here in Atlanta, there's still places like that, that it just kind of churn out this like cheap design and it kind of just cheapens like the industry for everyone else because I don't know, I guess the expectation sometimes from clients is that they just want something they may not know the necessary intrinsic value of design. And as long as they can get something, they don't care where they get it from, which that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. So let's, yeah. let's talk about some of the, the projects that you're doing now. Cause I know you're doing a ton of stuff. I've, you know, looked at your Instagram. I, I first met you actually at the black and design conference, but tell me about some of the projects that you're working on now. One of them I can't really talk about, to be honest which is the main thing I'm working on right now. Well, one of the main <laughs> things I'm working on right now. Okay. And th- there's another project. I just finished up this hat design with the Bulls. I okay. did something like an artist series thing with them. They released it at the game. It was a pretty, pretty cool thing. A lot of people really liked the end product. 
so that was great. And now I am preparing a show for Singapore. So I am doing an art show out there through an, an agency that is sort of like my partner, a partner agency. And that's going to take place on the 24th through the 27th of May. Okay. So I'm like finishing up work for that stuff and all that good stuff, starting some pieces as well. So that's what's coming up. And then also, I think I'm going to work with an artist in Chicago. Her name is Bianca Shaw on some of her album work as well. That's coming up. Those pretty much the two things that that are in there for me that I'm working on. One is another project. I can't really talk too, too much about the client, but it's like 25 portraits of, of their employees. Okay. That they like animate and you know, be a surprise to the employees. Oh, nice. That should be pretty dope. Yeah. Yeah. It's coming out pretty good. I have another, um, illustrator from Dallas helping me out on that, which I'm excited to be working with him. Nice. So did you by chance get to go to South by Southwest this year? Did you do anything there? I did. I went to South by Southwest this year and you know, there's some other stuff I want to talk to you, other projects and stuff. We'll get back to that, though. So I, I went to South by Southwest this year. It was a great time. I spoke down there at two panels. One was on street art and how how companies or brands or whatever are adopting street art as a way to market their products and what that's like. I worked on this big project with Bud Light last year for Chicago, where it was like the Chicago Summer Can, but it also was a can for Lollapalooza. And we did a big art show last year. Really successful. Really good turnout. Yeah, it's a lot of excitement around that thing. And then I did another panel called You Can Merch That with a friend of mine, Eddie Esquire, who's a, he's a lawyer in Chicago, an attorney. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he helps artists with you know their contracts with and helps businesses with uh, starting their business, with incorporating your business, applying for and establishing 501c3s. He, Eddie pretty much does it all. He's like the community's lawyer. He helps me you know, negotiate my contracts, like all of that stuff. And then my other friend, Joe Fresh Goods, who is an independent clothing designer, store owner in Chicago. Really, really successful. He did that Obama T-shirt, those Obama T-shirts last year that came out that Chance was wearing and went crazy everywhere. We did a panel about just merchandising yourself and merchandising as an artist. And it was great. It was a really good time. I also checked out a bunch of lectures while I was down there. I didn't do the music thing this year, which I did a couple years ago, and it was exhausting. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so like going to see these talks man it was super informative and it was great to connect with people on that level yeah south by is usually uh, certainly i think now it's gotten to be pretty exhausting i remember going back in in 2010 and I, the last time i went was 2015 and just the the stark difference in those five years was like man this thing is growing like out of control mm-hmm. yeah it is man it is now a lot of people probably know you best for your work that you did for Chance the Rapper, since you just mentioned them briefly. And I do have one question from our audience about one of the covers that you did for one of his tapes. Uh, This is from Cella Lewis, who she has been on the show, but she's also one of our contributing writers. And uh, she says, I love the cover art of Acid Rap. It looks very psychedelic. Who are your artistic influences? Yeah, so, man, there's so many. I mean, who who isn't like who who isn't that wasn't great? And if they were great, and I don't know about them, I need to know about them. You know, like I feel like I'm a sponge, man. I like to really connect with people doing awesome work in their era and their time. For me, like the notable people that stand out, like one of my some of my first influences were Joe Madiera. He's a he's a comic artist mm-hmm. from Marvel back in the day. I just used to I loved his line work. He was very inspired by. Um, anime and manga you can kind of see it in his work yeah. and that was back in the 90s and because of that i got into anime really heavy and manga more so series than i could point out artists because every anime series sort of has its own style as if it was a as if the anime itself was uh an entity or like you know like they had this whole style about the thing which is great yeah so genesis event evangelion was a, a big one for me akira was was amazing for me I got into Dragon Ball Z because it was on TV. You know, when, we, when I was in high school, I started seeing that a lot. So I was really into to, into those things as well. Disney, of course. I mean, if you want to talk about the earliest influences in that way, influence in a way in which you kind of don't even like realize. And I got a chance to like tour the Disney campus not too long ago. Oh, and, nice. Like, and see all of these like original concept work for like Cinderella and like all of this crazy stuff. And it was just, it was great how they worked because it was so many minds 
working on these one projects or this one product that came out and you really didn't realize it. And the way they were telling stories at that time was so innovative. And that's why they are who they are. Who else I would say? A recent artist, Takashi Murakami, mm-hmm. as I got you know grew older, I was inspired by Da Vinci. Was an artist I really, I really liked because of how broad Da Vinci was. He was a scientist, his artist, and he was doing like all these like studies and his and his anatomy studies of like you know like horse and person and all that. I mean, I thought it was great work. Just flying contraptions, just flying machines. Yeah. So I've been, in, I was into him as a kid. Just interested in what he was doing. I'm trying to think of other folks recently. I mean, they're, they're the causes of the world that, like, I love. You know, calls, right? Yeah, Art- AWS calls. Yep. So he's he's another artist. It's a lot. It's it's a variety of of people, and in nature, you know, like the acid rap stuff. All of that is like nature, and this idea of like connecting with nature, what psychedelics are supposed to to do to you, right? So mm-hmm. just leading. From the title and leading from the vibe and the energy of the of the project, I think that's where we arrived with that. It was so many things and in, in culture that were going on and moving simultaneously, like moving on at the same time as the acid rap thing dropped, like the tie-dye t-shirts came back at the same time. So like it was a lot of things that things that made that project perfect for the moment it came out. And I think Chance is like really good at that. And I just tried to draw from all of those things that were out there in the world to kind of create this idea. He was wearing like a tank top that I designed on it. So I wanted to like match that color with the, the setting sun, the sunset mm-hmm. and this idea of, uh, the, you know, those crazy purples and oranges you see during the sunset. Yeah. And make, so like this, this psychedelic trip type thing and worked out. Yeah. It does kind of look like it was uh, the colors do kind of remind you of like that dusk period right before night when the sun's setting and everything i really like that that cover thank you is kind of talk me through what your your process is when you're approaching a project like it sounds like you know you're pulling from all of these sources of inspiration but like when you're approached by a client for a project what does your creative approach look like man you know i think what it is is like more than it is design or anything else i think it's creative strategy and just really figuring out what's needed for this product to have the space that it deserves in the world and what's needed for it to stand out within the market. So a lot of my, that's what I do, right? I think that's just my strong suit or my advantage or whatever in, in my work is I just really try to like dig into that. And at the time, I'm, you know, I'm a, also a visual artist and I just always feel like people don't respect art as much as they need to. It's just like a thing that I walk around with mm-hmm. as like an artist or like a painter, like, in this area of pop culture, pop media, it's all about like consumption, right? Is how much you can consume in any given amount of time or how much you can put out in any given amount of time. It's like not much attention to a lot of things that, that come out and how they are received and how they're released and stuff. And I just wanted, really wanted to make a difference in that with doing this project. And also I think because of like advertising, because of all these other things actually do a fair job at diminishing the value of art and what it is to like have, you know, like pieces in the home and, you know, we go around and we visually stimulate it everywhere. So, like, how can you really think about art in a deeper, meaningful way when everything you see most of the time is trying to sell you something? So, for me, it was just about, like, how do I, sh- like, bring the attention back to the visual artists? Because at a certain point in album cover history or whatever, especially with hip-hop, they lean heavily on photography to, to tell the entire story. And that just became what everyone did for, like, the longest time. But you look back at at uh, Miles Davis's work, his covers, and, and Stevie Wonder's work, and you know these, these are like these are paintings, and these are these these images. Yeah. Work with a creative person to actually develop. It wasn't just like photo session, typography, and then turn them out. And I think music, not even knowing it a while ago, it really felt like that. It really, and even still now, a lot of things about music feel very manufactured, right? It's just like it, it, it is a product industry based around that. And I think especially in, I feel like in hip hop sometimes, you know, it's just like photo, type, CD press, you know, put it out. So I think it's a, it was a great opportunity in that to like, all right, cool, let's take some time to really make an impact with this cover art in such a way 
that it like it kind of transforms how people are seeing this thing or makes people really just to make people stop in their tracks and look and listen to what was what was on in this project. That was the goal. And that's how I approach that. And that's how I usually approach any project I'm doing with any other any other client in the same way. And it was effective and it started to change the landscape of how people were was putting out their work. And that's because of the music was so great that, you know, it was just so many things about it that was so different outside of itself and undeniable. Yeah. So I'm super proud to be a part of those projects. Do you think that people's relationship to art is starting to to change now that we're starting to see it more kind of woven into, into pop culture, not necessarily in a like consumerist sort of way, like you mentioned, like for example, and I, I kind of hate to use this as an example, but this is the first one that came to mind, but like the TV show empire uh-huh. often features like art by black artists in the settings of the offices and the homes and things like that. So people yeah. are starting to know about black artists outside of, you know, that sort of consumerist aspect. So do you think that this relationship is changing now with pop culture? Yeah. You know, I, I think artists always try to make an effort to, bring the importance of art to the forefront, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's their livelihood, it's what they do. So directors and those people, set design, like those people always look for those opportunities. We as artists always look for opportunities to do that, right? Because it's like, it's what we do. It's our friends. We know people that paint. We have an affinity for, for painting and we wish that it was seen more. You know, we realize that like those museums that exist in the cities don't often exist in the can all communities everywhere. So it's like an access thing too, right? Yeah. So. I do think it's changing in, in that way. You know, we, we've seen a lot more of that and it's making more directors want to do that and more people see the need for that by like by um, directors. Even like Spike Lee did it when they did the shot with the uh, what's that movie he came up with Chirac movie. And like everyone in Chicago hated that movie, but we want to talk about <laughs> it. But anyway, like, you know, they did it when they when it came to the art on the walls. My friend Hebrew had a painting in the film and a lot of other folks. And it's also changing fan wise as well right because these moments are these things are the only thing that the fans have to really connect with those artists beyond the digital file mm-hmm. and at the same time since you can't sell the music the actual product becomes the merchandise right yeah. the things you sell to, to maintain that so like you know chance is like making most of his money off the items that the designers make and that the artists make and not necessarily from the music itself so that i mean as a creative that kind of puts you in this position to say okay how do i you know like you know what okay how do i engage in these conversations and these negotiations now when i know that the product is actually the poster you know what Mm -hmm. i mean Mm -hmm. kids are buying a poster they're buying these posters like by like a lot of them so it's it's dope because that's what i really wanted to happen that's what i was like you know that was the goal of me like really seeking that out and and trying to approach this thing in that way and it's happening now and it's like, I mean, he was smart enough to be like, to say like, yes, everything that we create visually should be a poster, should be a merchandise item for people to be able to purchase. Why? Because it helps sustain me, my brand. And at the same time, it gives the fans somewhere else to relate to the artist beside the digital file. Yeah. So it's cool. I think we're in a really cool spot now. And like, you're going to see, I feel like younger and younger kids buying prints from their favorite photographer or their favorite artist and hanging them up in their, in their homes. You know what I mean? And that's what I, I w- would want it not to just be about fashion and what you're wearing, but about like also like how are you curating your space? What type of space you're creating for yourself and what art do you have in that space? Yeah. What did you think of the national portraits? I'm curious to get your opinion on that. The ones of Barack and Michelle that were recently unveiled. Yeah. Yeah. I love Ken Day's work. You know, I love his work. I think that it was what I would expect. I was wanting them to be, done by the same artist mm-hmm. for me just because yeah I, I don't know but I, I think it's cool that it wasn't like it's not what you expect right they weren't the president and the first lady that you would expect right so it's just kind of like this is cool i think when i first michelle's i like michelle's as well and i think she intentionally kind of wanted it to be and then you know i didn't i, I need to look this and look at this i don't kind of feel halfway comfortable speaking about this but the portrait she wanted, she didn't want it to be as saturated or something like that. She kind of wanted it, it to feel like uh, everyone can kind of fit in that space and feel open to to whoever might see themselves as a want to see themselves as a first lady, right? Yeah. So that's what I, you know, I was been as I've been talking to my other art friends was the, the reason why the artist 
handle the piece how how she handled it. It feels dope. It feels like an illustration though. It feels like a real graphic piece, and I appreciate that about it. Yeah, it was it was so interesting seeing the. I'm loath to call it discourse. It's more like just chatter. But like seeing people on Twitter talk about <laughs> like how the art is, and then you know it's it's again. I think you know. For the lay, the average layperson, they're looking at it kind of more through the lens of, well, I would have done this or I would have done that. Like looking at it more from a, a consumption angle instead of from like a, a critical type of angle. Cause like that's mostly what that particular artist, well, for both of them, that's what their works are like. It's, mm-hmm. you know, with Kehinde, it's this kind of like lush, kind of Baroque style. And then with Amy Sherald, it is like this illustrative, sort of desaturated in terms of like skin tone, but like often uses, bright colors and stuff. That's just what their particular styles are. And the Obamas chose them for that. So it wasn't like, you know, they just got picked out of a hat or something. Now, given that a lot of the work that you do, you know, like with painting and I think you do some sculpture work as well too. I have man, but I have, and I'm starting to build things for spaces. Like now I just built a shelf with this designed a shelf that was built with my friend, Norman Teague. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. I do some sculptural stuff. Given that you you work in these mediums that are pretty time intensive, how do you convince prospective clients that their time is worth investing in what the end product is going to be? You know, I I think in that I usually don't. When commercial projects, I usually go all digital. Okay. Like most of the commercial projects I do differently than I would my oil painting while I do like sculpture. I mean, I tried to do this, this bookshelf idea with Nike, but end up not working out, of course, because that timeline is crazy and because they have all the stuff going on. So a lot of times, man, the work speaks for itself, man. You know, like you you reaching out to me because there's something about what I do that you like. I don't want to have to prove myself to you yeah. while working on this project. Or whatever. And it, it takes a while to kind of get that, get your work in that place. I mean, but that's when, when you're at the point when you start doing stuff that you, you know, you really want to do. I'll put together a portfolio, show you what I can do. You know, so you have a clear understanding and you have some things that you can point to and say, I want something like that. Oh, you know, and that's what a lot of people do. Right. Like, I like what you did for this. Mm-hmm. Do something a little different. Well, I like what you did for this. Do the same thing and change the colors. You know, that's what you get. <laughs> a lot of times tonight. Well, you know, and, yeah. uh, you know, you have to, like, manage how you you want to work with that or not. But a lot of like a lot of times for me, it's just like, look, you see what I can do. You know, the value of it. Let me do what I do. And I try to like have that conversation as clearly and straightforward as with um, clients as possible. And it doesn't mean not being open to feedback and all that other shit. Not, no, I just try to like, you know, be 100 percent of, of, uh, of myself in that situation and let them know that, like, this is going to take a while. <laughs> if, yeah. if it's 20 digital portraits for 20, you know, 25 digital portraits for 25 employees. When did you realize that your work was at that level? When it was at that place where you knew that people were coming to you because of that and not you having to prove yourself on a project. Well, when they started coming to you, period, you know? Yeah. That's it. That's the the moment. Because this is a small world, but it's a, it's a huge world. There's a lot of people out here doing the same thing, doing similar things. So when people seek you out, you know, they're usually seeking you out for a reason or like mm-hmm. reaching out to you. Besides, like, you know... A local artist reaching out to you is different than Gatorade reaching out to you. Yeah. Different than a Nike or something like reaching out to you. So I think at the point they start to like see that stuff and kind of want to work. And that's when you kind of uh, can start to say, okay, I may not need the comfort or the shelter of an agency and a salary to make me feel comfortable. I can kind of do this thing on my own because I'm handling large enough projects well enough and executing well enough to have those people come back to me and also have it be visible to these other folks that now want me to do some things with them. So yeah, once they start like reaching out, I think there's a point you start like figuring out and it's just like, it doesn't, it's not an overnight. It took me a long time to really get, and it's like accidents. Like I didn't get paid for like the first, first time I did it. I mean, eventually we settled in all this stuff. I did the first chance stuff for free. You know, I did it because I was like, mm. man, I like this is an artist within the community that I care about, that I contribute to, that I consider myself a part of. I like this work. It's different than anything that's seen this. I want my art to accompany this because I think the product is really worthy, you know? Yeah. 
of people hearing, of getting as far as it can. And I'm going to do my job to get it as far as it can go. So you just never know where, like, I think a lot of these opportunities can't, you can't be too uptight with everything. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, I won't do anything. I can't do, entertain any free work. I get it. But a lot of times that, you know, the, the things that like money can't really buy you and money can't really afford you. Mm-hmm. And you have to have a good enough taste level to be able to know what's staring you in the face when it's staring you in the mm-hmm. face. Because if you don't, you'll miss the opportunity because you, you were thinking it was about a dollar. It's never about the money. It's always about something bigger. This is your time. This is your lifetime on this planet to, to leave whatever mark you're leaving yeah. and have a legacy you're going to create for yourself. And you could be with it and you could be present to what's going on. You could be worried about $5,000 or some whatever shit. You know what I mean? And that be in your way. Yeah. A lot of things get resolved when they need to get resolved. When I heard you speak at Black and Design, you know, I was really struck by how much you factor mental health awareness into your work. Can you speak more about that? Yeah. Mental health, the issue is, is big with me because, you know, my father was diagnosed paranoid schizophrenia like two days before I was born. A huge incident happened where he had to be arrested. He was arrested and he was hospital hospitalized, incarcerated for what happened. Yeah, he had a huge episode. So, and I, that was kind of hidden from me for like a long. Like I didn't really hear the whole story until I was twenty two. So you know, there's a lot of uh, closed lips and secrets and taboo, just nature attitude toward mental health and mental illness. And what, you know, what people are really dealing with, there's not a lot of uh, conversation around it because there's not a lot of education about it. You know, people, they have enough to deal with, with things that they can see and that are very real, like, you know, like tickets and car notes and rent, you know what I mean? That Mm -hmm. a lot of other things I think people just don't, they don't want to deal with. Right. So even in my neighborhood, it's common for, for that not to even be discussed or be ignored if there's somebody in your family or if you see somebody talking to themselves or whatever, you just don't acknowledge them you know you walk over you know just pass them and i think it's just common within our society to do that it's just lack of education about it right like funding uh, gets cut that's the first funding that goes you know they talk about that reagan in the 80s like and cutting funding right for these like institutions and then a lot of these people ended up on the street the same thing rob emmanuel they, they cut funding on it some years ago right so like the only place you can go to really get treated for Mental health, the best type of treatment in the city that exists for mental health, mental illness, you know, and all of that, the list of conditions that you can name after that is is the Cook County Jail, right? These people get arrested, and that's the only place they can get treatment for what they're going through, medication, etc. So I think it's a big issue. That's why I talk about it, even personally, too, dealing with anxiety or dealing with depression at certain moments in my life and not understanding that's, that's where I was, not knowing it could got a lot worse. Uh, you know, I think we all, at some level, know somebody that's dealing with it if we're not dealing with something in that space ourselves. And it's it's thought to be something that you should suppress or something that you can get over or something that you shouldn't worry about, you know, shake it off type of thing. And not for people wanting to discourage you in any way, not to, for like meaning well, you know, really wanting to, a lot of times people really want to empower you in a way is like, man, you get it, you can get over it. But a lot of times it's not something that you that easy to get over. So various things, you're not going, I'm rambling at this point, but all of those things, I think is the reason why we should be speaking about it, trying to understand more about it and uh, trying to find our own solutions about it. For me, what helped me with like anxiety and a lot of things that I was dealing with was, medi- was meditation, not medication. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and uh, I think that is That's, important. That sounds like the title for our art piece. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, man. That's why it came up, came to the forefront. And I thought, you know, the mental health is real peace was a good way to deal with it. I, I feel this personal responsibility to make sure that my work still continues to feel relevant while I'm doing commercial work. I'm not doing commercial work. So working in these things that mean a lot to me when I'm working with these larger clients is what make the, the work fulfilling. I'm not worried about selling out to like anybody else's perspective. I'm worried about selling out but thinking about selling out to myself and like what's true to myself, right? Mm-hmm. So that and that was something I created during the Bud Light project last year. The mental health is real thing. I wanted okay, we need to have some type of grounding, something real, something meaningful. So I'm tired of designing 
meaningless T-shirts for trends that exist that people won't remember in a couple years. It's not saying anything that's adding value to anybody's life or anybody's experience and not, you know, having me fulfill something good and something that's larger than getting this check from Bud Light and doing this art show. So those works and those pieces just come from that space, the space of uh, a genuine space. I try to make them, you know, come from that space. Do you feel satisfied creatively? Yes, because I found distinction and I found a way to identify the things that weren't making me satisfied in certain situations. Now I can speak to them directly and I can address them in meetings. You know, when I had discussions with companies with, you know, this is with commercial work. Mm-hmm. Personally, I get to play wherever I want to play and I get to like do speak to the narratives that exist within my community that I want to own reform, represent, you know, stuff like that. So I feel very, very satisfied in my work because I've, I have the, the language to express it. You know, I may not have the best way to articulate what that is all the time, you know, and I'm working on that part about it, but being able to see it is a major. Where do you see yourself going in like, say the next five years, what kind of work do you want to be doing? That's a tough question, only because the last five years, things have drastically changed. You know, I was having like visions of doing some of this stuff I'm doing right now. And all of a sudden it's like full steam in, in, in a way. Yeah. So I don't want to put any caps almost on the next five. So it makes me all <laughs> want to see anything. You know what I mean? My gut is telling me building communities and like building spaces, right? And like really designing them in a futuristic way. Not necessarily like, yeah, not like. Afrofuturism, because you know, certain things come to mind when you think about those things. And, and really, I'm talking about like really reinventing spaces and really creating different environments for people to live, create, and, and, and grow and nourish themselves in. So, my community is, of course, like a starting point for stuff like that, right? Also, like experiences, whether it be like art experience or installations and whatnot. But that's kind of what just came to my mind just right now as I'm thinking about it. I'm developing this interest for architecture and object design as well as, and that's, that's in the physical world, as, as well as uh, game development, stuff okay. in the not, not physical physical world. So, yeah, man, I'm like all over the place. <laughs> game development but, would be dope. I think we certainly need to start seeing more of that. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Well, Brandon, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work? And like, where can they follow you online? You can follow me online at my Instagram at bbro. Uh, that's B-B-R-E-A-U-X. And then you can find me on my website is brandonbro.com. B-R-A-N-D-O-N-B-R-E-A-U-X.com. And then also, I wanted to talk about, I forgot about to talk about another project. Can I go back and speak about that? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Field Trip. Field Trip is a, a nonprofit I started with a friend of mine and a partner, uh, Jeff Ulrich. And it's a program where we, we're taking kids to art institutions as a way to expose them to art and culture and give them access to certain artists. So a lot of times we invite other artists on the trip. And then we also do panels after every trip now. It's a new thing that we're going to do. So that people have access to these people working in the field and the kids can experience it and express the conversation, have that level on after just a regular field trip. So I'm, I'm very proud of like where that's, where that's going and where that's headed or whatnot. So, yeah, I wanted to talk to you about field trip a little bit. And now something else that I wanted to touch on was I did a PBS series, directed it a little bit ago with my friend Nick Castle. It's called What's Good? And it's a digital series designed to educate young parents on ways to introduce their kids to STEM learning, mainly like science and, and math and learning. So we talk to a lot of artists and creatives around how science and math is included in what they do. Mm-hmm. and give a lot of examples of how those same lessons apply in real life stuff. So check that out at pbs.org and check out all my other work on my website. All right, man, that sounds good. Well, Brandon, bro, I want to thank you again so much for uh, for coming on the show, for, you know, really sharing your story. I really get the sense, well, I got the sense, rather, when I first met you at Black & Design, that you're someone that really thinks kind of very passionately about how your work sort of not only impacts the community, but also sort of represents the culture. 
And certainly I think, you know, from this conversation and you mentioning your influences and things like that, that you're really kind of continuing to sort of push the boundaries and break the mold of what we can do and how we can be seen and represented as black people in this world. And I think it's really dope. So I just want to thank you again so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for having me, man. I love what you're doing. I love what you've built so far. So I'm excited to be here, man. Thoughts of love are and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Brandon Bro, and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Brandon and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Facebook designers work on creative products that are used by over 2 billion people. But what's it like actually working there? You know, everything that Facebook designs is done at scale, so design critiques, metrics, and other factors are a huge part of how they work. Sound interesting? Then learn more about Facebook design and what they do at facebook.com forward slash design. Glitch is the friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. From games to art to music and hardware, Glitch is flexible enough to create some really powerful tools. You can even use it for work or to learn how to code. The possibilities are endless. So what will you create today? Get started at Glitch.com. Whether it's defining a branding style in VR or creating a voice user interface that actually feels human, Google Design is committed to sharing the best design thinking from Google and beyond. Sign up for great stories, events, and the latest updates on material design at design.google forward slash newsletter. Again, that's design.google forward slash newsletter. You can also follow Google Design on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well. MailChimp gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, then please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute or two. It helps more people learn about the show here in the U.S. and internationally. It helps the show by buffing us up in the rankings for design podcasts. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, if you're listening to this and you want to hear next week's episode early, then you should become our patron over at Patreon. Now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives in our field are being told in their own words. So if you support us, if you support our mission, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. For just $5 a month, you can get access to behind-the-scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.